when we get together as a church, we really get together because fundamentally we need God. Um, we, there are a lot of different reasons that churches could meet, but, but we look at this and we say that in our lives we need ballast in our boats. Um, we'll just drift meaninglessly if we don't have God in our lives. If you take God completely out of the picture, there really is no purpose in life whatsoever. Um, if there is no God, if there is no creator for this creation, if there is no designer for, for what looks like design around us, then the truth is everything's pretty meaningless because there, there's no purpose behind it. It all just kind of happened. Uh, Bertrand Russell, who's an atheist, he said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. And so, so if there is no God, then there is no meaning, there is no purpose. If there is a God, then he's the one that we need. And he's the one that needs to be that ballast in our boat that will steady us and guide us and direct us. And so we get together week after week, not to be a religion where we, we just uh, hear some nice words and then go out uh, somewhat motivated to go and do some good things, but we gather to hear from God week after week. And a big danger for us is, is that we could just become a gathering where, where we get together and say, hey, this week, stay motivated, keep your chin up, stay happy, and then we leave without the strength to do any of those things. And we leave without what we desperately need, which is to, to have God guiding and ruling over us and being our Lord and not just someone who's there as an encouraging word in our life, but as our Lord and our master. You know, there's a big danger that we can just turn God into this, this kind of harmless sky fairy who, who is up there to kind of sprinkle some encouragement on us and whatever we were trying to do, and then we go out and do it with that encouragement, and that's what we need from God. But that's not the God we see in the Bible. The God we see in the Bible has weight, he has authority, he has power, he rules over everything. In the Bible, we see everything start with God creating it by speaking. We see God coming in, Jesus Christ, and living with weight and authority and power. And at times, we'll see a picture of Jesus that we very much like in the Bible because it fits us really well. At times, we'll see a picture of him that we don't like at all because he's the one with authority and will come sometimes into our lives to disrupt our lives. And, and so as we read the Bible, we see here a book that at times is funny, and at times is light, and at times is very encouraging, but the whole thing has weight. The whole thing has weight because this is a book not about us, but it's a book about God. And in this Bible, we see a God who's alive, a God who's sovereign and rules over everything, a God who is personal, and a God who has authority. And as we've gone through this book of Mark, Mark starts with this announcement that God has come to be among us. That Jesus Christ is every bit God. He's all God and he's all man. And so when he came to live among us, he came to live with the kind of weight and authority that you would expect the God of the universe to have. And in these next few chapters in Mark, we see Jesus coming back and back, back over and over again to his authority, his power, his control to show us who he really is. And who he is, sometimes again, we don't like, but he's always what we need. And so, so we're going to see today a picture of him and his authority in our lives that shows us that he's God and see a picture of the God that we need. But uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So a little bit of background here. The city of Capernaum, it's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was Jesus' adopted hometown. Uh, it seems like in the Gospels, this is his home base, where he, he travels around the region. He didn't travel very far, but travels around the, this region, preaching the kingdom of God, doing miracles, healing, and then eventually dying. But the place that he keeps coming back to is this city of Capernaum. 
Uh, while he was there, he's living with Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Uh, Jesus didn't have his own home at this time. Um, you know, he said that the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. And so, so in one sense, Jesus was homeless. Um, but when we think of a homeless person out on the street, that's not what he was. He was living with different people. He was doing itinerant ministry, which meant he was going from town to town. So he had other people that he had to stay with everywhere that he went. And um, in this home that he's living in, archaeologists today tell us is right across the street from the synagogue. And um, the synagogue, is where it says he immediately went, was different from the temple. And this is just a little background on what's going on here. Uh, sometimes we get synagogue and temple confused, but there was one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. That was uh, the building that was just huge and immense and beautiful and expensive and took years and years and years to build. That was the place where they offered sacrifices to God. That's where the priesthood operated. And that was the hub of Jewish life. That, that was where everything happened. That's where God showed up among his people. It was in that temple in Jerusalem. But then in every town that had a significant population, there was a synagogue. And the synagogue was not the temple. They didn't do sacrifices there. They didn't have a priesthood there. It was basically a community center where a lot of community life would happen. Uh, they would gather there just to be in each other's lives, the kind of place where they would do weddings and other gatherings. But the pinnacle of community life in those synagogues was the teaching from the Torah, the Old Testament, from the Bible. Uh, that, that when Jews went into all these separate cities, it was easy for them to lose their identity, for them to lose their faith, to forget a little bit about who the God of the Bible was. And so they set up these synagogues as places where the Bible was taught. And it was taught regularly. Uh, these synagogues were run by what, these guys who are called the rulers of the synagogue, and they were scribes. Uh, these scribe guys were the guys who knew the Bible uh, better than anybody else in town. They had studied the Bible. They were basically Bible professors. Uh, they were sometimes called rabbis or teachers. And they ran the community life in those synagogues, and they were the ones who got to decide who was going to get up and read and teach from the Torah week after week. Um, and they, they chose who would read and teach, first of all, from a small pool of people that could read. Um, only about 10% of the population could read at this time. And then those people who seemed to be wise and seemed to know enough of the scripture where they could have them get up and teach, those were the guys that were appointed by the rulers of the synagogue to get up and teach when they gathered on the Sabbath day. So, so that would go on, and it would go on every week. And it was very similar to what, uh, when a church owns a building, what that church building can become to those people. Like it just becomes the hub of their life. And that's what's going on in this synagogue that was right across the street from where Jesus lives. Now, apparently, he's developed some kind of relationship with the ruler of the synagogue. He, he knows Jesus. He knows he can read. Jesus seems to know this Bible thing pretty well. And so he chooses Jesus to come and teach in the synagogue because there, there was a little bit of a rotation. And so in verse 22, here's what happens. It says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So these scribes, when they taught, they didn't teach with authority. They, they always taught with a derived authority, where they were quoting from other authors, other teachers. They were quoting even from the Bible and saying, this is what God says. And, and much of that was right, uh, because they weren't God. They didn't have the kind of authority that Jesus did. So they needed to quote from the scriptures all the time. They needed to talk about what other teachers have said, because their knowledge and their authority was derived from other sources. But then Jesus gets up to teach, and it's not what they expected at all. He gets up, and they're astonished, and this is before anything spectacular happens, which comes in a second, but before anything spectacular happens, they're astonished that his words have authority. Jesus gets up, and he's not quoting the latest authors. 
Uh, he, he quotes some scripture, but then when he stands in front of them, he makes these claims, and we see some other places where he taught in the synagogues, and he would read scriptures and say things like, today, what you're reading is fulfilled in your presence. And then he would go and sit down. Now, from, from what we see of Jesus' preaching ministry, we see preaching that has authority, where he seems a lot more like a prophet than he does uh, like just a scribe or some other teacher. He comes, and his words have weight. This is something that's unlike anything that anybody is hearing there. He's not just coming and and pulling from this old teaching. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. It's shown up. It's among you. The kingdom of God has come. It's in your presence, and and I'm the king of that kingdom. So I don't know what the words were that he said that showed that he had authority, but when people heard him, they were astonished that he was saying those things. Now, probably a lot of what he was saying was angering these synagogue rulers, because he was probably coming saying some things that could at least be misinterpreted to make people think he was God. Um, and, and, and he was God, but he hadn't really announced that fully yet. And so, so he's out there, and he's saying things that are pretty weighty, that if, if I were here and there were a guest speaker that were come up to say some of the things that we see Jesus saying, I'd be freaking out in the crowd. Um, I, I know when I was in youth ministry, there were some times where I would have guest speakers come in and speak, and I thought I knew them pretty well. I thought I knew what they were going to say. And then five minutes in, it's crazy. Like they're just saying crazy stuff or it's some crazy rant. And I'm just picturing which parents are going to email me this week and who I'm going to have to apologize to. And I'm just sinking in my chair because you don't want to have them preach the whole thing to you ahead of time and be condescending, but you do want it to be somewhat reliable. And so these guys choose Jesus. He gets up and he preaches and they're going, oh no, what, what is this guy saying? And so they're thinking, okay, I'll, I'll blog about this later and that'll clear it up. Well, next week will be like the apology sermon where we, clear, we clean up the big messes that Jesus is making. So this is a bad day for these synagogue rulers because he is coming saying some stuff that sounds absolutely crazy. And then it gets far worse. Look at verse 23. And immediately, so this is before they can even stand up and do anything about it, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, it's a word that can be translated, shrieked, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. So this is an awkward day for the scribes. I mean, (laughs) normally the people are coming in and they're gathering for a lecture. And and they're expecting maybe at best an engaging sermon from one of these guys who had studied some stuff and learned some stuff. These people show up, and here's this guy saying, the kingdom of God is here, he's here, he's now, you need to repent. And and so it sounds like this guy's crazy. They're about to do something about his crazy, and then all of a sudden in the crowd, someone with a demon inside of him starts shrieking. So these synagogue rulers are going, man, this is bad. This is not, I went to the seeker-sensitive synagogue clinic, and uh, they they taught me not to do things like this. Like, it's supposed to be friendly and air-conditioned and people to help with parking and smiles, and we got demons and crazy guy up front. And so... So they're thinking, this is a terrible day for us. Things are, are, are really bad. And, and you'd think maybe they could clean up some of this mess, but then it gets even worse. Verse 25, it says, but Jesus rebuked him. Jesus is talking to the demon-possessed guy. He says, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So things just got really complicated. Because if they go back and they try to clean up this mess that Jesus made, and they say, no, this guy, Jesus guy, he didn't have the kind of authority he claimed, then everybody's going to be saying, he seems to have some authority because he just cast out a demon and it worked. So, so that's strange. But then if they were to say, Jesus does have authority, he's good, look what he did for the demon, then that undermines their whole religious system. 
that undermines a lot of what they teach after week. These guys, week after week, these guys could be out of a job. And so this is a really bad day for them. Everything gets really confused. And, and Jesus is speaking, and he's not only speaking with authority and talking a good game, but he casts a demon out of a guy just with his words. So this Jesus guy is unlike anyone that they have ever seen before. And so immediately word starts to spread. Verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So they got together to hear a sermon, and it was a crazy morning. Nobody fell asleep in church that day. All the teenagers, you know, after the exorcism, on the drive home, they're just going, that was awesome. Can, can we please go back to that place? Because, man, at least something happened. At least there was some kind of energy. There was some kind of action in the room. So, so word starts spreading. Everybody hears about this Jesus who speaks these authoritative words. He's casting out demons. And we read this, and we um, are in 2012. And so our quick reaction to this stuff about demons is, really? Demons? Like, do, we, do we really believe this stuff? I mean, haven't we advanced beyond that? Because aren't, aren't all these people who everybody used to say was, were demon-possessed, weren't they just like, mentally deranged or sick or, or had epilepsy that would cause some of the, the things that they were saying? And we know that now, but they didn't know that now? Well, on the one hand, I don't want to be a church that attributes all sickness and all sin to demons and Satan. We don't want to be a church of people where every time our kids have a stomach flu, we're calling for an exorcism. Um, and, and I have little kids, so I've seen some stomach flus where if their heads were to spin around, I wouldn't be surprised. But, uh, but just because we see sickness, I guess you guys are too young. Um, <laughs> just because we see sickness somewhere doesn't mean that it, there's necessarily a demon that caused it. In fact, if you look at verse 29, the next thing that happens here, it says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he, he came, he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So in this story where he heals this woman who's got a fever, there isn't any mention of a demon. So, so obviously there are times when sickness can be sickness. There are times when sickness can be demonic. And you see Jesus healing too. So there are really two errors here. The one error is to say that demons and Satan don't exist at all and to just say that there's a naturalistic cause for everything, which isn't true. The other error is to say that they are the cause for everything, for all of our sickness, for all disease. Every time I sin, it's because the devil made me do it or a demon made me do it. Well, no, I'm good at sinning on my own. Uh, I don't need help. I can, I can do fine with it. Sometimes there will be temptation that I didn't see in some spirit realm, but I don't want to quickly blame somebody else because I sin on my own just fine. So in the ministry of Jesus, we see normal sickness, and Jesus speaks and heals sickness. We see demonic possession, and Jesus speaks and casts out demons. And now, now if we want to say, well, this had to just be epilepsy or something like that, you really can't say that because epilepsy doesn't cause somebody to recognize Jesus for who he is. In fact, the first voice that we have recognizing Jesus as the Son of God is the voice of this demon-possessed guy after his father in the, in the baptism. When Jesus is baptized, we hear the Father speaking and recognizing his Son. The next person recognizing Jesus is a demon. And he talks to him like he knew him from way back. What are you doing here? I know exactly who you are. I know what you're going to do. You're going to torment us. Don't do that. Don't do... You hear these guys recognizing Jesus for who he is, and that happens because these demons are real. 
So the question for us is, why don't we see more of this going on today? You know, why is it that in America today, it doesn't seem like we run into a whole lot of possession and, and things like that? You know, I've been called in just a few years of ministry to a couple of really weird things. Um, people claiming like that their house was haunted, which I would say would normally be demonic, or, or some weird things where people think that there's possession. I've seen a couple of them, um, and some strange stuff, but nothing too severe. And nothing, honestly, that I couldn't have just explained away with naturalistic causes. So why don't we see more of that? And I think one reason, at least the part that falls on us, is that we don't have eyes to see it. We're not looking for a supernatural realm to be at work among us, so we don't end up seeing it. I mean, I know for me, like, I'll go to the fridge, and I'll open it up, and I'll say, hey, Debbie, um, I can't find that sub. Did you eat the sub that I had in here? I'm looking all through there, and I can't see it. And then Debbie will say, yeah, it's right there in the fridge. I look again, and it's right there. I've had the fridge open, and because I didn't have confidence that it was there, I just never saw that thing. And then as soon as she says it's there, it's like magically it appeared, and I I could have seen it the whole time. And sometimes this is the way it is. We, We don't have eyes to see a spiritual realm at work. We're not looking for it, and so we don't see it that often. And, and so some of that's on us. Some of it could be that we don't pray like there is a spiritual realm and real spiritual battles going on like the Bible talks about, and, and to our shame, because we don't pray like that, we don't see the same kind of action in, in these ways that we saw in the New Testament. Maybe. Maybe that's part of it. Secondly, some of this may just be part of Satan's strategy. Um, I've never been to any of his meetings, and so I haven't seen, like, the PowerPoints or anything like that. And... Um, Unless you count a couple churches, I've got to, no, but um, I've never. I've, so I don't know. I don't know what he plans. I don't know how he works. But this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said one of Satan's best tricks in the 20th century is to make people believe that he doesn't exist. And so it would seem like in an area that's dominated by more pagan religion, by animism, it would make sense for demons to show up and do some stuff to impress people, to make people think there's a real power there, to counterfeit the power of God. But it makes sense in an area that's dominated by secularism and naturalism for them to just be quiet and and for us to believe that there is no supernatural, there is no life after death, there is no spiritual realm. So that might be part of his strategy. Uh, A third reason we don't see so much of it is that when Jesus showed up, he was invading. I mean, the, the first words we hear Jesus saying are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. I mean, this world had been ruled over by this little G God, Satan, for a long time. Uh, he had kind of had his way with the place. He, he had ruled over the nations, and, and people were, were enslaved to Satan and his demons. And when Jesus shows up and announces that there's a new sheriff in town, you would think that that would stir up some demonic activity. So, so those could be some of the reasons that we don't see as much of it today. And, and I don't think that we have to be alarmed by that. I think it means we should pray more. I think it means we should be, allow ourselves to be more and more informed by Scripture but also just to continually realize that demons are alive, they're active, they do stuff, and the world is, has a lot of natural things that come from natural causes, but there are also supernatural things that work around us too. Now, another danger is that we can get so bogged down by just talking about these demons and focusing on the demons that we miss the big picture of what Mark is actually saying here. Of what he's trying to establish for us to believe about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who has authority both over natural sickness and over these demons that make people tremble. In fact, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 19, I just want to show you what normally happens when people encounter demons. 
You know, the, the teaching of the Bible is that uh, there were these angels, and they, they worshipped God, they served God, and then Satan became arrogant. He wanted the worship, he wanted the praise, so he fell a, a well, as well as a third of those angels falling with him, and they today are demons. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is when angels show up, they're powerful. You see one angel killing thousands of people. You see strength and power that people just couldn't stand against. And that's what you see even when demons show up, even in the New Testament. Acts 19, verse 13, here's a a story of some guys who ran into a demon. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So here's what's going on here. Here are some guys whose job title is itinerant Jewish exorcist which um, I don't know how you get into that field. I don't know if uh, you know, you're a senior in high school and you meet with the guidance counselor and you say, well, you know, I, I don't like staying in one town and I'm Jewish and I, I like casting out demons. So I don't know, are there any jobs for itinerant Jewish exorcists? <laughs> and the guidance counselor says, yes, yeah, actually there are. There, there are openings. Um, what about for my sixth brother? Uh, maybe I'll just be an accountant. I don't know. I'm kind of weighing those two. And so... So these guys, they're traveling around, casting out demons, and they have heard that there's this power. There's this Jesus guy who had been crucified and resurrected, and Jesus had spoken and cast out demons. Now other people are coming in his name and with his power, like the Apostle Paul, and in the name of Jesus, they're casting out demons too. So these itinerant Jewish exorcists say, that sounds good. This sounds like something we could work with. So they start using the name of Jesus to try to cast out demons, and here's what happens when they run into one. Um, Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So there wasn't just one itinerant Jewish exorcist. There were seven, and they were all brothers. So they all had the same aptitudes. They all you know, scored the same on that test, and so they all got into this itinerant Jewish exorcism thing. And then verse 15, it says, But the evil spirit that's in this person answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is not a good day in the world of itinerant Jewish exorcism. Um, (laughs) And and there's really no doubt who won this fight. Uh, When when I was in Orchard Park uh, as a kid growing up in high school, a few times a year there were the big fights where a couple guys were going to go at it, and everybody knew they were going to go at it, so the crowds would gather after school to watch the fight. And in Orchard Park, it was Orchard Park. Like, the fights weren't that big a deal. They didn't want to mess up their hair gel. And so these two guys would go at it, and they would jump into this fight, and they'd both land a couple of punches, maybe a little bit of blood, and then it would get broken up real quickly, and then both of them would immediately claim a win. Um, It was like a vice presidential debate. Like, they'd get in... (laughs) land a couple punches, and then come away going, did you see what I did to that guy? Totally messed him up. I won that thing. And both of them were saying the same thing. So you didn't know who won? In this fight, there was a pretty clear outcome. If you go into a fight, and you have clothes on, and then at the end of the fight, you're naked and wounded... (laughs) You're not coming out of there going, did you see what I did to that guy? No, everybody's saying, you lost. Like, you, you clearly lost that fight no matter what. The guys who refed that Green Bay-Seattle game could look at this and say, it's clear. Here's, here's the winner. We, we know who this is. And, and so this is what normally happens when people encounter the power of a demon. 
it's, it's not normally this real easy, I'm just going to say some things and it's going to go away. It's a battle and you lose because these guys are strong. These things are powerful. You, you don't mess with that kind of force. And so that makes what Jesus did back in the synagogue all the more remarkable. He spoke and the demon left that guy. What kind of guy has words like that? Who can do that? You know, as soon as this happens, word spreads like crazy. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 31, it says, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So as soon as he does this, the whole city gathers around. Everybody knows he's there. And without any energy whatsoever, he's casting th- these things out. It's not some big epic battle. It's not that you know, Jesus had to have a coach in his corner spraying water into his mouth and saying, here, go in, go, in, go, go do it this time. He just speaks, and these things are cast out. It's not you know, Beowulf versus Grendel, and we're going to rumble, and we're not going to know who wins. It's going to be an epic battle. He speaks. This Jesus was unlike anybody else. He had words that were unlike anybody else's words. He had power that was unlike anybody else's power. And that's because this Jesus is not just the latest teacher. He's not just the latest itinerant Jewish exorcist. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And when he came to be among us, he came with all the weight, all of the authority, all the power of God. He didn't come with a book of spells. He didn't come with a maybe I could win this. He didn't come with a degree from Hogwarts and you know, maybe I can make this go away. He came and he spoke and there was power and he won. And he won every time. You know, sometimes we see these pictures of Jesus in the Bible and it doesn't necessarily say what we're supposed to do with them. And we read through the Bible and we're going, okay, where is the, okay, now therefore do these few things. And sometimes the reason for that is because we need to hear these stories, believe these stories, and work them into the deepest part of our consciousness. That our deepest consciousness is of Jesus, who has all authority and all power. Of Jesus, who causes demons that normally make everybody else tremble, to tremble and flee. And to be worshipers and followers of that Jesus and believe that he's the power in our lives. So what practically can we do with some of this stuff? I think, number one, we have to realize that the words of God have power. As a church, we spend a lot of time teaching through this Bible. And the reason for that is, is though we believe this is a Bible that was written down by human beings and they use their personality, you can see the personality of Mark in his gospel, Matthew in his, Luke in his. They come from different places and they have different personalities. But we believe that every word in the original Bible was put there by God. And so this has power. You know, we're living in a day where a lot of churches, uh, what they'll do is they'll say, we want to reach people, and so because we want to reach people, we're going to take the Bible and push it off to the side and do something else that will do more to reach people. I don't believe there's something we can do more to reach people than, than teach the Bible. I believe this is what has the power to change a heart, to change a mind, to transform somebody's will, transform their emotions. I believe this is where the strength comes from. This is the book that God gave us to reach the world with. So do we want to reach people? Absolutely. But we don't come up with our own way of doing it. We proclaim Jesus. We proclaim him in his word. We believe that this word has power, this word has weight, this word has authority, and nothing that I can say has weight like that if it just comes out of my head. If I read from the Bible, I'm reading the word of God. If I'm speaking, it's just me talking. And I want to speak words that can give life, and my words can't. So we teach Bible. 
Uh, as individuals, we need to make sure that we are people who are in this Bible. Sometimes we, we live in this place where we feel like my soul just won't tap out to God, where I feel like my, my sin won't tap out. It just won't ever yield. And it seems like I can't change. I can't be transformed the way I want to be. Uh, I want to see my life different. I want to be yielded to God. I want to be a worshiper of God. And I just don't have the power. I just can't work that up. Well, the teaching here is that the words of Jesus have power. So by being people who are in this Bible regularly, feeding our souls with it, feeding our minds with it, we start to find some of that power where sin taps out and where our soul taps out and yields to God just like we want it to. We can't work that up on our own. We, we need the Bible for that. So, so in this Jesus, we see how his words have power and we have his words here. I mean, when God speaks, stuff happens. You see it in the book of Genesis. God speaks and the universe is created. And today, we believe that when God speaks, the church is created. God's people are formed. His people of faith are made when he speaks through his word. You know, some people would say, well, the church created the Bible. I disagree. I think that the Bible created the church. This came first, and when we believe it, we become the church. So we want to major on this. We want this to be our book. And I, I read a lot of books. I love reading books, love reading theology. Uh, I, I love reading ministry books and Christian books. Uh, I don't like fiction. Everything else, I love it. But nothing has power like this. And so it's easy to just throw this aside and look for the newest, wisest teacher. Let's not do that. Let's listen to those wise teachers that God has given to bless us. But let's make this the book that we build our lives on. Let's make this our bedrock. So his words have power. Number two, Jesus is the God that we want. He's the God that we're after. He's the one who has glory and weight. And when we say that we need to have that ballast in our boats, we need to have purpose, we need to have direction, we need to have that one that steadies us and shows us what we're all about, we need someone to have authority over our lives, that one is Jesus. But what we tend to do is we tend to make gods out of smaller things. We tend to, to find something small and run after it. We run after very trivial, very small things and try to get those things to satisfy us, and they just never do, and they just never can. Everything in our lives except for Jesus should be pursued with a degree of, of moderation. I mean, we should exercise, but just exercise enough. We should you know, be healthy, but just be healthy enough. We should have a social life and have enough of a social life. We should save money and, and just save enough money. We should you know, have insurance, go on vacation. All these things are good things to have in our lives, but we can have too much of them. We can focus too much on them. All of them need to be moderated and held to the right level. Because Jesus is God, he's the one worth abandoning all to. He's the one worth living for. He's the one worth, worth yielding to. And so, so it's in Jesus and his mission that I want to invest my heart. It's in him and his mission that I want to invest my energy. It's where I want to invest my life. Uh, this is where I want to invest my money. I want this all to go into Jesus and his mission. I want that to be the primary place where I hold nothing back because he's worthy. And he's the only one who's worthy. He's the only one with that kind of authority. As parents, hopefully this is what we're raising our kids for too. You know, I, th I think we should try to get our kids the best education we should get them. I think we should try to get them on the best career path we can. I think we should try to, to raise them so that they choose the right spouse and get into the right kind of family. Those should all be our desires, and we should put major effort into that as parents. But more than anything, we've got to raise our kids to know Jesus. We've got to raise them to see that Jesus is the one who's got the weight and authority and power. Jesus is the one who's worth living for. 
Uh, every week we're posting online right now a study guide that Aaron Cloutier is writing up um, just basically to go along with the books that we're teaching through in church. And so there's a, there's a study guide on Mark that's going up on the city. If you don't have a membership on the city, it's free. Just um, If you fill out your Connect card, we'll invite you to the city tomorrow. Um, but, uh, but this study guide goes out every week. So if you're looking for a way to try to teach your kids the Bible, that's there. Uh, Also, every week when our kids are learning from the Gospel Project curriculum in their classes where they learn over three years to know the uh, the message of the Bible and how it's all about Jesus, we send a card home with them every week that has what they learned, what they're talking about, and we would encourage you to use that card to teach your kids and to drive those things into their hearts because ultimately, you know, if if my son grows up and he never makes more than $25,000 a year, but he loves Jesus and he devotes his life to him and his cause and his mission— and, and because he loves Jesus, he loves his wife well and raises his kids well. If, if that's what happens for my son, but the career never becomes awesome, or, or he doesn't get the degree I would want him to get, that should be a win because he's got the, the weightiest, the most important thing. And then all those other things can just be gravy. But when we live like something else is more weighty than Jesus, it's always going to get us all out of kilter. So a couple applications. We see that Jesus' words have power. Number two, we see that Jesus is worth living for, that he's weighty. And then number three, just to draw from the next few verses here, even with all of his authority and all of his power, Jesus constantly prayed and depended on his Father. Look at verse 35. He says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So so the day before, Jesus got famous. Everybody is coming out to see him. But he didn't turn into a diva. He didn't start making demands for his green room and and what that needs to be like if he's going to come and speak. He didn't start hoarding likes on his Facebook page and feeling good about himself. He went and he prayed. He spent time with his father. So here he is. Jesus has more authority than any of us would ever have. He speaks and it gets done. This is the guy who spoke and created the universe. And we see him on his knees depending on his father. How much more do we need to depend on our father? And how much more do we need to pray? If Jesus, who is God, prayed and depended on the Father, man, I need a whole lot more than he did. Not only that, but just the the gospel piece here. All throughout the life of Jesus, you see him, on the one hand, having infinite authority, infinite power, infinite righteousness. But then on the other hand, being humbly and infinitely submitted to his Father. You see it all throughout his ministry, like where, where it's always a big moment, lots of crowds, lots of people, big miracles, word is spreading, and then Jesus retreats to a desolate place and prays there. You see that pattern over and over all throughout the Bible, and, and what we see in Jesus is this infinitely holy, awesome God who also comes and lays down his life for us. And when we look at the cross of Jesus, that's a place where we see this God who's infinite in his power and authority, but he comes and he gives all of that for us. And the truth is, that's what we needed too. You know, when we sin, which, which we do, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we sin against an infinitely holy God. And that's a big deal. That, that means that our sin has infinite weight. 
It's not just a crime because we hurt somebody else and there's a certain weight to it. We're sinning against this infinite God, and so our sin has infinite weight, which means we deserve infinite punishment. So that's really bad news. But the good news is that Jesus submitted himself to the will of his Father, and he came here for us as this infinite God who died on the cross, making that an infinite punishment. So when we find ourselves with that huge gap between us and God that we can't cross, sometimes we'll try to cross this infinite chasm with our religion and a few good works, but it's like trying to throw a rope across the Grand Canyon. It just never gets there. There's nothing we can do to make it across on our own. We try religion. We try these good works. We think, maybe I can do something to cleanse my conscience and get God to like me, but it never feels like enough. And this is why religion can become for us just this treadmill that we get on and we run and run and run. It seems like we're never getting anywhere and eventually we just get exhausted and quit. But what Jesus calls us to is not religion, but he calls us to a relationship with him that he paid for for us. That though I'm sinful and I deserve hell, though I'm more sinful than I could ever know, Jesus, out of his love and grace and mercy, came and submitted to the will of his Father died on the cross so that that infinite punishment that I deserve was taken and so that I could have his life. That's good news, which means we should all stop trying to earn our way to God. Don't think by putting money in the box that that gets you connected to God. Don't think that by showing up to church that gets you connected to God. Don't think that by doing and doing and doing that's going to give you a relationship with him because the gap is infinite. The only one who can bridge it is an infinite one. So trust Jesus. Turn from sin, turn from what was driving you, turn from what you were living for, and trust in him. And the Bible promises that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not by the good works we do, but it's by the good work that he did on the cross so that we can have that gap bridged, we can have a relationship with the Father because he rescued us from a situation we couldn't rescue ourselves from if we tried. That's good news, and that's news for us to believe. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute, please. You know, I think there are probably a lot of people here today who would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I, I have come here with some friends, and, and it was okay or not okay. I don't know what your assessment would be at this point. But I just want you to know what, what we're all about. And we're all about this good news of the gospel that says that you can have a relationship with God, the relationship that your heart needs. You can have your sins forgiven you can have eternity with your God that everything that you're longing for, the longing underneath all of your longings, is a longing for that. So if you're here and you recognize that, you recognize that you've sinned, you know you've lied and that's wrong, you know you've stolen and that's wrong, you know you've fallen short of the standard that you just sense is out there, then don't try to fix it on your own because you've created an infinite divide that you just can't fix. Instead, trust in the infinite one. Trust in Jesus. Trust that Jesus Christ is all God and he's all man and he came and he lived the perfect life that none of us have lived. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. So that if we'll just turn from what was driving us and turn from our sin and trust in him and his sacrifice alone for our forgiveness, our righteousness, our relationship with God, then we're forgiven. What happens in that instance, the Bible says we're born again. A new us is created when we trust in Jesus. And so if you're here and you recognize that gap and that divide, then trust in Jesus. Um, pray, cry out to him. And, and you don't have to use any special words. You just say, God, I know I'm sinful. I know I deserve your judgment. 
but I believe you took that judgment for me on the cross. I believe you died and were buried and rose again, and so I'm turning from sin, I'm turning from unbelief, turning from religion, and Jesus, I'm turning to you and only you. Please forgive me. Please save me. And the promise of Scripture is that he loves you and that he will. That if you turn to him in simple faith, he promises to forgive your sin, to wipe it away, to credit his death to your account so you don't have to die anymore, and then to give you life. It's the great promise of the gospel that we have, and so it's the constant encouragement for everyone is to turn from sin and to believe in him. And if you're, you're turning from sin and trusting in Christ today, I would encourage you to tell the person who brought you I'd encourage you to let us know so that we could celebrate that together and even baptize you to represent that, that washing that Jesus did in your life. And if you're here today as a Christian, it's a good time to confess the way that we live for things that just aren't weighty. And we treat them like they are. Where career becomes ultimate, money becomes ultimate, school becomes ultimate. They're all good things and things that we should pursue with a, with a spirit of excellence. But none of them should be worshipped. Only Jesus can bear the weight of, of worship and, and the kind of dependence that we need to have. So let's confess to God the ways that we haven't made him the weighty one in our lives and we haven't listened to his authority. Father, we thank you for your word. And Jesus, thank you for, for your power. Jesus, you're the one that we need. Uh, but we confess that sometimes you're not the one we want. And so, so I pray that we would see you for who you are. And as we do then, Lord, that we would, would want you too. Lord, we need the weight that only you can bring. And so I pray that you would make us worshipers of Jesus, followers of Jesus who live lives with a sense of purpose and weight because you're in them and because you're in your rightful place in them, in a place of authority and lordship. Uh, Jesus, we need you to do that in our hearts. So I pray even as we sing these songs and worship you, that you'd be driving that gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts so that we could believe it because none of us believe like we should. Uh, So we ask this morning, Lord, that you would help our unbelief, help us to worship you, and transform our lives as we see you for who you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name.